The Down for Disruption podcast may contain language and subject matter such as trauma, abuse, sexual violence, mental crisis, homelessness, and other sensitive topics that some may find unsettling or offensive. Views expressed by the host are not that of the Alive Network or its affiliates, nor is any commentary a substitute for medical or clinical advice and treatment. Listeners are welcome to explore the opinions and suggestions of any invited expert as they do so choose, but medical recommendations of any kind will not be made by any Alive Network party nor its affiliates. The Alive Network and its affiliates assume no responsibility nor liability for any undue distress or harm one should cause as a result of any spoken or written commentary by either the host or guests that listeners misinterpret or take out of context. We thank you for your support. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Down for Disruption, the Alive Network's newest podcast for black and brown women over the age of 40. Hey, y'all. Where are my exers? That's right. I am your host and favorite menopausal misbehaved per AJ Wright Mental. That's W-R-I-T-E Mental. Thank you so much for tuning in. Here at Down for Disruption, we support the sisters lifing after 40 while managing a mental health disorder. Oh, child, I'm tired just saying that. Are you newly diagnosed? Have you had a mental health diagnosis for a while? Hell, think you're diagnosable and, and, and have a million and one questions? It's okay. Life is lifing, honey, and I understand. Down for Disruption is the safe sandbox to discuss all things midlife and mental health. Promote support. For those of us who are feeling hopeless, unpack generational trauma and Black family dysfunction and navigate solutions. So basically, we'll disrupt the chaos that is everyday life and hope to turn things right side up. So each week, we'll we'll have a tough conversation and sometimes it's necessary, followed by moments of reflection and and we'll close with some actionable steps for self-repair. Is that all right? (laughs) I like to say I'm the menopausal misbehave her because I'm just that one friend who can't seem to behave herself and and yeah, I'm going through it. So I've been acting up a lot more lately. Aren't we all? Listen, I am not a therapist. Let me get that out of the way, but I am a veteran mental health activist and longtime mental health patient. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> they let me out. But as I said, we're we're in the safe sandbox here and we're going to heal and to laugh and to support one another and talk about stuff that we understand. So whether that's bipolar disorder and hot flashes, God help us, or anxiety and, and mammograms or empty nesting and and schizophrenia, hell, dating after divorce, and broken vibrators. We're going to discuss it all here, okay? So I want y'all to pull up, sit up straight, and listen to me with your right and left ear, because honey, this this here, <laughs> this is going to be a wild ride. Hey, Sandbox champions, you guys came back. Evidently, some of you must have recovered from episode two. I know one and two was a lot of trauma. I I hope not too many of you were triggered. And and if so, you were able to self-soothe. I promise every episode is not going to be that heavy. It won't. I want y'all to come back and be friends with me so you won't chase me out of Walmart with a stick if you happen to see me. If you have no idea what you just turned into, this is AJ Wright Mental, W-R-I-T-E, the Down for Disruption podcast, the safe sandbox for Black and brown women over the age of 40 who are trying to survive midlife, dear God, and a mental health diagnosis. Episodes one and two, the story of my early childhood, and then episode two, my 20s and 30s, which is my life mission to get you guys to avoid, was context. 
for all the episodes going forward. I told y'all we're going to cover some things and and it's all the over 40 stuff, not just medical. You know, we, we're going to talk about the insurance and the empty nest thing and, and the estate planning. And hey, some of you are starting families and all of that jazz. But today, didn't I promise we're going to start having experts? <laughs> today, we have a special guest did anybody catch us on IG? All the announcements. We have a guest today in the safe sandbox with me and all of you sandbox champions, the one and only from Riverside, California, therapist Aaliyah Jackson. How you doing, Aaliyah? I am doing great, and I'm so excited to be here with you all and delve into things. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Aaliyah is from Southern California, Riverside, actually. She is the owner of Aaliyah Jackson Psychotherapy and Consulting. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist. You may have seen some of her awesome videos and her teaching. She's a health educator, a, a psych educator where, you know, I'm a community educator where we're out here doing this thing um, all over social media and in private practice. She actually has 20 years of experience in the mental health field. She's worked privately providing direct clinical services, including diagnosis and treatment. She's worked in a supervising role of multidisciplinary teams, managing mental health programs, regional adult mental health programs with over 100 employees. I mean, Aaliyah is a boss. Um, she, she is the subject matter expert in mental health, specifically in diagnosis and treatment. So, so we're going to talk today about unmet needs and, and how we miss undiagnosed mental illness and not getting help early. You remember I mentioned that in episode two, the diagnosis and treatment of severe persistent mental illness, forensic mental health, and even eating disorders. I mean, her area of expertise is expansive. Aaliyah's target population of focus is adults. Her clinical orientation and what she specializes in, in other words, is cognitive behavioral therapy, that's CBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, and psychodynamic therapy. And, and she can explain all of what that is, because I am not Alex Trebek, okay? In her current role, she is a mental health administrator as well. And, you know, she, she performed like a full scope of administrative and operational responsibilities for a huge regional mental health program out there in Riverside, where she's responsible for adults in a, a, a large, you know, geographic area. If any of you are familiar, Aaliyah also develops implements, administers, and maintains standards for treatment and services of the largest, most comprehensive mental health programs with department-wide responsibilities there as well. She somehow has time to maintain her private practice and provide treatment services, uh, addressing the unique needs of, of those with psychiatric illness, you know, ranging from mild to severe. You heard me say earlier, persistent. So we'll go over that. What sets her apart from others is she has a vast experience in forensic, where she collaborates with the judicial system and the county mental health departments. And she also has specialized training in eating disorders with the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals Foundation. And it is rare. I'm going to tell you, I have, y'all might remember me saying I have five mental health diagnoses. Okay, it is rare to find minority licensed professionals who specialize in the treatment of eating disorders because why? The world thinks it's a white woman's disease. Hello, lifetime has lied to us. Shocker. 
she's most proud of choosing to expand her specialization in this area of, of eating disorders to diversify the provider selection and to shed a light on eating disorders and disordered eating in minority communities. Aaliyah recently published her first book, CBT, Me, for eating disorders and disordered eating to assist with providing psychoeducation on eating disorders and reducing the stigma. Down for disruption, can we please give a round of applause for Aaliyah Jackson? Woo! I mean, did you write the Guinness World Book of Records too, (laughs) ma'am? You you are out here doing the thing. I I just want to dive right into the questions we have about 45 minutes. Okay, so in episode one and two, you know, again, I talked a lot about childhood trauma. And, you know, if if people are listening who did not catch it, you can go back um, and catch that at a later date. Um, And especially in the description, it tells you living in a house where predators run amok and a mama who looked the other way. Uh, The story of a lot of us. And a, a caretaker who just, for lack of a better term, didn't give a damn. Um, can you speak on, in terms of Black family dysfunction, the significant role that undiagnosed long-term trauma plays in how symptoms manifest in our adult lives that we sometimes are not even aware of? Absolutely. So the effects of childhood trauma can last well into adulthood, as most of us know from lived experience, you know, friends share experience, family experience, community shared experience. So experiencing trauma in childhood can impact the way that you form attachments. Mm -hmm. And it also influences the way that you see yourself, others, and then the world that you engage with, that you experience as an adult. Childhood trauma can impact an adult's ability to function in various areas of life, um, such as work, relationships, and self-care. So caring for your own self is impacted by childhood trauma that is carried over into adulthood. Ultimately, childhood trauma increases the risk for mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. Adults who experience childhood trauma, such as physical or sexual abuse, domestic violence, community violence, are at higher risk of developing mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, among Mm -hmm. other conditions. I also want to point out that childhood trauma can shape an individual's thinking and behavioral patterns. Mm -hmm. So this can manifest as negative self-perceptions, self-blame, distrust of others, substance use, impulsivity, among other uh, behaviors that a person can experience. So childhood trauma has also been linked to a range of physical health issues in adulthood. So this includes chronic pain, heart disease, immune system issues, eating disorders or disordered eating, obesity, and other medical conditions. So I want to add as well that while childhood trauma can increase the risk of mental illnesses, not all individuals who experience trauma will develop mental health disorders, but it definitely places someone at a greater risk for developing mental health conditions. Right. And I'm I'm glad you said that it can affect behavior because, uh, you know, uh, a lot of times people always use that that classic example of that woman who is either into nymphomania, you know, sleeping with multiple partners or looking for love in all the wrong places as having daddy issues, or maybe she was exposed to sex early as a child. But they don't think, you know, like you said about other behaviors, that being distressed of others. Or I think about that one auntie that we all have, you know, the one with unsolicited advice, no boundaries, whatever comes to her head, comes out of her mouth. And she's just combative and likes to snap at everybody, including her supervisor. Yeah, her. (laughs) Right. And you never think like, what is childhood trauma has to do with you acting a fool at work? Mm -hmm. That's not a marriage or a romantic relationship, but one really can have to do 
with the other. In terms of numbers, like statistics or ratios or anything, how prevalent are mental illnesses, I, I, I guess, across the spectrum, specifically depression and anxiety in Black women, especially our age group? Well, I can provide some insights based on general trends of what we see. So Black women face unique stressors. So this includes discrimination, socioeconomic disparities, access to healthcare issues, cultural stigma, historical trauma, and experiences that can influence their mental health. So studies suggest that Black women, regardless of age, actually can experience higher rates of depression. And I, I think that's so important for people to know because sometimes our baseline functioning of distress and endurance, right, this strength-based schema that we have significantly impacts our risk for developing things like depression and anxiety. It's good that you mentioned that, that we can experience depression at any age. And um, i believe I brought this up in episode one. If you're a Gen Xer or you grew up, say, maybe in the 90s and before where nobody was talking about this stuff, you basically had no feelings. You're a child, stay in a child's place, do as I say, not as I do. You don't pay bills, which you got to be depressed about. That sort of thing. The, the other thing I wanted to ask you, I covered eight symptoms of depression and I asked listeners to match each symptom with a current or past situation in their lives. Can you speak specifically to how depression presents in Black women compared to other races? Yes. So this is a great question because depression in Black women doesn't always present in the traditional way. So what I mean by that is you may not see a Black woman endorsing crying spells or sadness or isolation. So the stereotypes of the strong and resilient Black woman may keep the Black woman from leaning into sadness or anything that could be seen as weak. Mm. So we are more likely as Black women and girls to experience what's called psychosomatic symptoms. Mm. So this means that the manifestation of stress, anxiety, or trauma Mm -hmm. is in our physical bodies. So studies have shown that Black women with mental health conditions like depression and anxiety report higher rates of headaches, migraines, muscle tension, back aches, and gastrointestinal issues. So think of your friends who are often experiencing these psychosomatic symptoms, headache, extreme muscle tension, are always complaining about not feeling well in their physical body. So Black women go to the doctor for headaches or gastrointestinal issues. Providers often immediately look to treat those symptoms rather than getting a full understanding of the person's stress or anxiety level. So this leads to misdiagnoses or underdiagnoses in many Black women in the Black community. So the takeaway here is that depression is a very nuanced disorder. It can look different generationally, intergenerationally, culturally, emotionally um, for Black and Brown women. So I think that's a huge takeaway, you know, not to categorize it as crying spells or sadness or these traditional ways of what seemingly looks depressed. Right. And and that's I wanted to wait to this question and tell folks what we're talking about today. I know some people are probably like, she didn't even tell us what the title is, what episode. I wanted to wait to this question. We are. At episode three, what you haven't heard about mental illness, the Black woman's experience. And I wanted you guys to hear it from a therapist's mouth. For those who have been living under a rock that's located in a cave way in the back, who might say, well, why does everything, you know, Black this and Black that? Don't we all get sad? Don't we all get sick? Why is it always disproportionately Black? Now you see why. Uh, The same question for anxiety. What are some anxiety symptoms and how is it different sometimes or, or even often for black and brown women compared to other races? Right. So this is another great 
question. So data show that Black women, you know, have anxiety. It's more chronic and the symptoms are more intense. So what it does not tell us is how anxiety is perceived and experienced daily by Black women. So symptoms are similar to that of depression, which anxiety and depression are like brother and sister. They often show up together. So symptoms include tension-related ailments, such as tension headaches or chronic muscle pain, physical anxiety, such as a racing heart, tension in the chest, feeling afraid, having thoughts of constant worry, kind of excessive worry, overthinking things. I treat a lot of Black women who not only have anxiety, but also trauma symptoms that inevitably exacerbate the anxiety. So we treat those simultaneously. We treat those at the same time. So overall, Black Americans face several additional risk factors for anxiety, including racial trauma. So those risk factors include exposure to racism, racist abuse in the workplace, microaggressions in the workplace, the effects of racism, such as fewer opportunities and less safe communities, higher rates of trauma, including sexual assault and police violence. So it's important that we continue to raise awareness in the Black community so that more of us are willing to engage with providers about our symptoms and live happier, longer, and more fulfilling lives. Thank you. I'm just so happy to be having this conversation. And I I like to say I'm the unicorn. I'm just not textbook. For me, I have had the crying spells and obviously, you know, I still have a speech impediment. And I did mention, I know I mentioned in episode one that Mm -hmm. not um, just because you stutter does not mean yet you automatically have or your child will grow up with a speech you know impediment anxiety isn't always a function of a speech impediment but you know obviously mm-hmm. uh you're watching me i got bad nerves can't sit still there are things that are just unique to us and it brings me to this this whole concept this whole perspective of white woman tears that I've heard every argument for and against that there are some people who still don't believe it's true. And the way I've, uh, and I posted something about this on Instagram, the way I like to explain it is black women do not have the luxury of collapsing in the middle of the lobby on bank of America's floor crying. I just can't take it anymore. I'm stressed. Nobody's coming to our aid to pat us on the shoulder and say they're there. It's okay. Like they would Sally. Right. If they even notice quite often, you know, our our pain, our anxiety, our what have you is invisible. Dr. Rashad Ritchie posted a video on YouTube. uh, I want to say it was about a month ago. It was a little black girl, probably nine or 10 years old in front of a, a stoop somewhere, an apartment building, a store, something. Middle of a busy day, crowded sidewalk. Nobody stopped. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. Nobody stopped. That. Right. Nobody stopped. Now, they replaced her in the next clip with a little white girl standing there, same thing, wasn't talking, didn't bother nobody. Immediately, several people, especially white women, comes to ask her, hey, sweetie, are you out here by yourself? Are you, are you okay? Mm-hmm. Are you lost? Nobody paid any attention to the black child. Quite mm-hmm. often, we are invisible. You know, so I'm, I'm glad you touched on that. Um, and you say you treat both anxiety and depression and trauma ch- tends to exacerbate things. The next question I have is, can you go over some indicators as to when one is starting to spiral? What can a woman look for or anybody look for to signal to them, OK, my mental health is starting to decline. I need to get help. So first acknowledging when we are in distress physically so and mentally, right? Because our head is connected to our bodies, our body is connected to our head. So paying attention to your physical and mental distress is a good step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. If you notice thoughts, feelings, behaviors that cause you unusual distress, 
reach out to a mental health professional. Too often, distress becomes the baseline and proceeding that is the spiral. So we're not paying attention and checking in and being mindful of how we feel in our own bodies. Mm -hmm. How do we feel in our own thoughts? Mm -hmm. What are our thoughts provoking? Are they provoking negative emotions and feelings? Are they causing me to judge myself or think harshly about who I am as a woman or a human or a mom or a friend, a wife, a person? So I think being able to first acknowledge the distress, both physical and mental distress, is a step in the right direction. Okay. Okay. For the person who, you know, they're now in therapy, therapy has has just become the norm, but there's still, I call it the struggle to juggle. They're still, you know, having all of these issues trying to balance, you know, they've got pre-existing health conditions. Now they have a mental health conditions. They're having a rehash stuff that happens when she was eight that God knows she doesn't want to talk about, you know, kids and older adult to take care of and all other, you know, life is a country song. The dog died, the truck blew up, the creek froze. How does she cope? Can you give us some actionable steps for how she should cope? I know one of them is the CBT and we'll take some time and, and go into your book about that. Right. So challenging your thoughts because sometimes they're, they are untrue is really important. Okay. So I always tell my patients that your thoughts can be 0% true, 25% true, 75% true, or 100% true. But if we don't take time to challenge thoughts that cause us distress or thoughts that trigger negative feelings, emotions, then we could end up believing things that are just untrue about ourselves, others, and then the world around us. So if you notice the way your thinking triggers negative feelings, it may be that your thoughts are inaccurate. So if you're having some automatic negative thoughts that, you know, kind of develop into some negative feelings and then you're really hard on yourself preceding that, challenging those thoughts are going to be a good first step. So next comes practicing mindfulness. Um, Mindfulness is a type of meditation in which you focus on being intensely aware of what you're sensing and feeling in the moment without interpretation or judgment. So practicing mindfulness involves breathing methods, guided imagery, and other practices to relax the body and help to reduce stress. So I would say, you know, challenging your thoughts If they're leading to uncomfortable feelings about yourself, that harsh self-judgment, and then implementing something like mindfulness could be helpful in basically regulating your central nervous system Mm -hmm. and helping to really Mm self-soothe for yourself and help yourself and show up for yourself in those challenging moments. Mm -hmm. I I know, um, and, and champions, I hope you're writing. Remember, I said we like the right over here. So, so some actionable steps would be one, challenge your thoughts, you know, and, and not let the negative thoughts overtake you. And, and two, to practice mindfulness, you know, being acutely aware in the moment and, and, you know, getting in the habit of self soothing. I mean, cause let's face it, our schedule is our schedule. And I think mm-hmm. it, it, boils down to time management a lot of the times. You know, we don't have time for us. And then depending on the age, I think anybody can help, but help do what? It depends. And you you can tell me whether you agree with this or not. Depends on the age of the people in your household. I always say, share the load. You know what I mean? My aunt used to say, if you can shit, you can share. You know, meaning like, look, if you can dirty it, you can clean it. You know, a mom shouldn't be doing chores while you have a 14, 15 and 16 year old watching TV. And and she's somewhere in, in the middle of the lobby in Bank of America crying. What would you say to that? 
Yeah, I definitely say a collaborative spirit of approaching wellness is most effective in family dynamics. So definitely working collaboratively and making, you know, such things a shared experience is helpful. And it does, you know, kind of provide a reprieve for family members. So I think anytime you're approaching it with a collaborative spirit to really promote wellness Mm -hmm. among all family members, then you're, you know, headed in the right direction. Awesome. Now let's take a deep dive into your book. You really went to work in that. Is, Is it available on Amazon? It is. Yes. All three of my books are available on Amazon.com. Oh, so CBT is the third one. I'm sorry. I said first time, but I'm, I'm sorry, y'all. She, she's an expert expert. Okay. This this book, one thing, the first thing I noticed, because I flipped through the book and I said, yay, it's, you don't need a magnifying glass to read it. It is not a bunch of just, you know, black and white wording, completely boring. It's interactive. It's basically a built-in journal. You can write as you read. It's in color. There's activities. It's comprehensive. So you're helping yourself, you're healing, and you have things to write down while you're, you know, things to write down to reference later on. So tell us the title of your book again and explain CBT therapy and whatnot. Right. So CBT Me for Eating Disorders and Disordered Eating, I developed that to assist in psychoeducation and also with the treatment of eating disorders. So I treat a wide range of races and ages with eating disorders or disordered eating. So maybe they don't meet the full threshold for an eating disorder, but they have some behaviors and patterns and a relationship with food that isn't healthy, right? So this book basically incorporates cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive reframing, restructuring to really address thinking, feeling, and behavior and making that triad a connection and helping someone to develop new thoughts, new feelings, and adaptive healthy behaviors in relation to food. So in the way that they see their own body image and who they are in the grand scheme of things. So this book is, in my opinion, very comprehensive. It is easy for someone to educate themselves with. I did refrain from getting too clinical with the verbiage and the jargon and try to really stick to more of a comprehensive approach to educating people on eating disorders and helping people develop skills um, so that they can manage their eating disorders and at, at best, you know, reduce and or eliminate their symptoms. That is good, especially for us because, I mean, oh God, how much is trauma, you know, centered around food? How important is food in black and brown culture? I mean, even in a lot of families, I saw Pastor Michael Todd preach an entire sermon, like over an hour just on gluttony, which I had never seen before. And it it wasn't something, you know, punitive, where it was a, a solid hour of, you know, you keep doing this, you're going to rot in hell, hellfire, damnation type sermon. But, you know, he took it from a few other perspectives that I I had not thought before. You know, you guys have to go back and see it. But the reason why I mention it is, you know, you get into the habit, at least in my household, my mom's from the Caribbean. If you're ever around Islanders, you know, we like to eat and drink. That's just it. Um, We get into the habit from the time we're kids, you're going to eat what I cook. And even if you're full, you're going to eat what's on your plate. You know, so you just I got into the habit of basically hoarding food from the time I I was a kid. And by the time I was a teenager, I can remember it getting anxious. And if if I didn't have something to eat, it was like a switch would go off. Even if I, I wasn't hungry, I was just wanting food. How can you tell a woman for herself or, or even a parent or a caretaker When is it, you know, a child, as we like to tell them, they're just being, you know, 
greedy or they're wanting food because they're bored versus when it really is a clinical problem. Right. So I think looking at, you know, food in terms of, is this for solace or is this for nurturing your body? Right. Cause we need food. We have to eat. Mm-hmm. And so for example, with binge eating disorder, you know, you'll often find layers of trauma anxiety, depression with the eating disorder. So I can tell you from my experience, I've never only treated an eating disorder. Every patient that I have professionally treated with an eating disorder or disordered eating, they've always had other diagnoses as well. So you have to approach this holistically It's not a Mm one-off. It's approaching and addressing all of the symptomology that is reinforcing the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So then it wouldn't surprise surprise you if I I, I told you that not only do I have binge eating disorder, but I've also been diagnosed, well, among other things, PTSD and borderline. You know, and, and there are a lot of not a lot of minority clinicians who specialize in or even treat borderline personality disorder. But that's a whole <laughs> different thing. But, you know, again, it's, it's when we're little, a kid is crying or unsettled or mom's frustrated. Well, if you'd be good, I'd give you candy. You know, and then we start to associate food as a reward. Or, or it, what I've heard from other friends who've come from various islands to the U.S. who maybe grew up in poverty, didn't have enough. They hoard because they think, you know, if I eat it all today, at least I ate today. I don't know when I'm going to eat again. Do you see a lot of that? Do you treat a lot of folks from various islands? Yes, I treat a very diverse population of people, um, mostly minority women, to be honest with you, which is really surprising given that most people think this is non-existent Mm -hmm. in minority population. So I do see a lot of that. I do see a lot of food is comfort. It's the one thing that people feel that they have control over or they use it as a mechanism of controlling their own outcomes, whether, you know, it's that they're overeating or undereating, whether they're in a small or larger body. So you see across, you know, the spectrum of eating disorders, things like perfectionism seems to be a trait you know, kind of a foundational trait in that people have some level of control mm-hmm. whether they're in a larger or smaller body. Yeah. And and it's a sense of safety for some people. You know, these are their defense mechanisms. This is what how they're coping, right? Mm-hmm. It's manifestation of things unseen. And what I mean by that is, is that we can't always see depression. We know that because mm-hmm. everyone's not having crying spells. We can't always see anger. Some people are not throwing things at the wall or doing all these other things. So we can't always see trauma, mm-hmm. right? It's not always evident that someone has endured extreme stress and trauma. So it's the things under the iceberg. And I. this is an illustration in my book, too. Like, you may see this, but then what's underneath the iceberg? Right. It's so much more that plays into someone's development of an eating disorder. It's not just about consuming large amounts of food. It's way bigger than that. Or under eating, it's way larger than that. It's a way bigger picture. Okay. Going back to... Um Anxiety. I saw you posted a fabulous video because people use anxiety attack and panic attack interchangeably. And uh, I guess I I, I did for a a long time as well. But you posted a a really good video um, not too long ago about the differences between anxiety disorder and panic disorder or, or the differences between an anxiety attack and a panic attack. Please enlighten us. 
Of course. So these type of attacks have different intensities and durations. Anxiety attack is not actually a clinical term, and a lot of people don't know that. And it is not included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So that's the dsm Five, mm-hmm. anxiety is often a reaction to self-perceived threats, and it may not be related to an actual dangerous or life-threatening situation. So it's the way that we're perceiving something or our best guesses, our interpretation of what we think is happening or is going to happen to us. So there is a spectrum of experiences that people might have and define as anxiety. So here are some helpful tips to basically help you differentiate between panic and anxiety. So panic attacks typically occur with a trigger, but can also occur without one. So they're very abrupt. Sometimes they're happening, they're hijacking people out the blue sky, clear blue sky. You're all of a sudden having a panic attack. Symptoms typically appear suddenly. Symptoms are disruptive and may involve a sense of like detachment. Like some people literally feel like they're having a heart attack um, and they're that scared in the moment. And it typically subsides after a few minutes. So it's a shorter duration from an anxiety attack. So anxiety attacks is a perceived kind of a response to a perceived stressor or threat. Mm -hmm. Feelings of anxiety may build gradually over time. Symptoms can vary in the intensity from mild to severe, and then symptoms may prevail for longer periods of time. I often hear patients say, you know, I was lost in anxiety the entire day. I look up, my whole day is gone, and all I did was worry about every little aspect of my life. So that's a good example of moderate to severe anxiety versus if you have a panic attack, once it's over, most people feel relieved. Mm. They're scared for it to return, but they feel relieved, and it doesn't return you know, for hours or days, they're very random. They're very abrupt and sudden versus anxiety. You can be living with anxiety every single day. You wake up and you're anxious. You wake up and you're on edge or you're irritable or you're nervous. So that's the difference. So so the anxiety symptoms could be worry or uh, maybe irritable or I heard something before about rapid heartbeat, you know, maybe changes in your breathing, uh, sweaty palms or something. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. All of the above, all of what you just said. So you have racing heart, excessive worry, muscle tension, fatigue, irritability, sleep disturbance. Many of my patients have very difficult time with their sleep because they're constantly experiencing racing thoughts, Mm -hmm. which is like, one of the main characteristics of anxiety. It's this excessive worry. It's the racing thoughts, the never ending concerns that you have that just hijack you all day long. Right. So the example I can think of during the pandemic where unfortunately, and to me, this was so ghetto. I mean, I understand people were working from home, but really HR, they're just the number of people across the country who got fired by Zoom. And the last W-2 job I worked, which I really enjoyed, I mean, as a health educator, we just sat on the phone to talk to people all day about COVID. And I got some encrypted anonymous email. Hey, the meeting tomorrow at three with Cheryl is to let go, to let 50% of the company go. Um, I just finished cursing her out. And I was like, what? Is this real? So, you know, we're all like me and five other people are going back and forth and emails like, yo, we're about to get let go tomorrow. And for 24 hours, I could not, I want to say I couldn't breathe, but you're right. I was worried. I I couldn't sleep Mm -hmm. and, you know, all of that versus, you know, I've had HR experience where I experienced panic, like, you know, those rotten supervisors with their sexual advances, right? And I'm in a copy room with no cameras, that kind of thing. 
you know, would, would that be an accurate description of going into a panic attack? And Oh, of course. Yeah. Feeling that immense doom, feeling that fear, feeling just kind of like the walls are caving in on you. I mean, that's pretty descriptive of like panic um, and having a panic attack. Most people do find it difficult to breathe or catch their breath during a panic attack, kind of like you're going to pass out. You feel like you're dizzy. And in some cases, some people do actually pass out because that's how scared they are in the moment. Wow. Real quick, as we're winding down, do you um, take, with your busy schedule, are you taking new patients? And if so, are you seeing anyone via telehealth for all of my folks who might be listening in Cali? (laughs) Right. So I am accepting telehealth patients. Um, Currently, I accept the following insurances. Kaiser, Aetna, Anthem, Cigna, Optum, and MHN in the state of California. So I'm credentialed with, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, six insurance boards. Okay. Yeah, I have to count because see, I got a lot going on. <laughs> you do, you do. And I think MHN is a new one. So okay. that's a new one for me. Yeah, yeah, I haven't heard of that one, but just going for the underdog, the legions of people who don't have insurance can't afford therapy or maybe for practitioners who don't offer self-pay or don't offer a sliding fee scale or what have you. Besides your book, what can they do to help themselves in terms of therapy or some type of therapeutic treatment? You know what? Every county in the state of California can assist you with accessing health care, period. Mental health, physical health. So I would say contact 211 in the state of California. You just dial 211 and you can get assistance with getting linked and coordinating any services, no matter what part of the state you're in. It could be Northern, Central, or Southern California, and 211 is accessible to all California residents. So you can also contact your local county mental health clinics. Mm -hmm. Um, We are designed to provide a service to you, no matter if you have insurance or not. So um, it's the new Cal AIM initiative. And if you walk into our clinic's doors, there's a no wrong door policy. So you will get help if you walk into a county mental health clinic. That's a good to know. And actually, 211 is um, nationwide. I worked their hotline uh, when it was advertised as United Way 211. Now it's just 211. Um, and you mm-hmm. would, for those listening, you would dial 211 like you would 911, and you would mm-hmm. state to the representative what your need is. Um, excuse me, what your zip code is, what county, what your need is. And they can tell you, you know, whether it's food or housing or social workers, human trafficking, insurance, therapy, whatever you need, they can tell you what low to no cost services are available in your area or at least somewhere close. Because I do, you know, keep in mind that some folks live in a podunk sticks way off the grid in a county where I think in North Carolina, there's there's one town where the average household income is about $25,000 a year. And they have no services there. They have to travel like 38 minutes to go anywhere. So um, yeah, you can dial 211. You know, there are plenty of services. I would just say, you know, please check with some of these um, online programs. I won't mention any names, but there's one I'm thinking of. (laughs) Check with some of these places and, and just make sure they haven't gotten sued recently and 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 that they the the services that they are providing the clinicians are licensed and experienced and credentialed and if you don't know what to search for as i've said before you can just put what you're feeling in a google search box and it'll tell you who specializes in what in your state, in your area, or just some way that you can get help. But please don't suffer alone. 
Thank you, Aaliyah. The Down for Disruption podcast has been graced with your presence. And the Sandbox champions are just overjoyed that you were able to stop in and enlighten us. And your book, the name of it is, um, I'm going to get it, CBT for, okay, I didn't get it. CBT, Me for Eating Disorders and Disordered Eating on Amazon.com. By Aaliyah Jackson, A-L-E-A, her beautiful self. Thank you again so much. How do we find you on social media? So I am on Instagram. Now, I've had some challenges trying to manage all these platforms, (laughs) but I can tell you that Instagram seems to be the one that I got down. So it's Aaliyah Psyched for therapy on Instagram. You can also visit my website at Aaliyah Jackson psychotherapist.com. Okay. All righty. That, that, that concludes today. I told y'all it was not going to be as heavy <laughs> as it was. Thank you so much, Aaliyah. Thank you. Whew. Another day of healing on the books, my sandbox champions. We did it, ladies. Did y'all enjoy today's episode? Hey, listen, shoot me an email at lowercase letter I disrupt at disruption.buzz. I disrupt at disruption.buzz. Of course, we're starting a buzz. I'd love to hear from each and every last one of y'all. Now, again, while I AJ, do not give clinical advice. We we do welcome your feedback here about the show. Any thoughts on, you know, how you're currently healing or adjusting the diagnosis? Anything you want to share? Maybe a, a testimony or anything like that? Or heck, maybe just one event. Look, AJ, I get it. Life is lifing, right? Perhaps you've already started some type of uh, self-repair routine that you want to share, okay, let us know. And and where are my generational curse breakers? <laughs> Y'all better pull up. Anybody having that tough conversation with mama or somebody else who looked the other way? Breathe. I get it. I get it. And we are all in the safe sandbox to heal together. Be sure to subscribe to Down for Disruption on the Alive podcast app on iOS and Android, where you can support this podcast monthly and and share your favorite moments there as well. Follow Down for Disruption on Instagram at Down for Disruption. Once again, the Down for Disruption podcast is the safe sandbox for Black and brown women over the age of 40 who are struggling to manage midlife while battling a mental health diagnosis. We are out here, ladies. Thank you so much for your time as usual. I had a blast. I am your favorite menopausal misbehave her. AJ Wright Mental, that's W-R-I-T-E Mental. See you in the sandbox next Saturday at 1 o'clock Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Have a good Saturday, y'all. Bye-bye.